Well, I've been talking for the last five and a half years at the St. Louis County Choices Program, and uh, it's a uh, mandated by judge for people to be there that have gotten in trouble. I never considered myself a speaker. I never thought I'd be up in front of people talking about my son's death. It rips my heart and my guts out all over again. I relive that day all over again. Please take this experience of this Choices Program and use it wisely. I wish my son would have got this chance. He didn't. We found him dead in his bed with a needle sticking out of his arm. I know now talking about my son's passing has helped me to grieve properly. I don't mourn his death anymore. I'm celebrating his life. He didn't die in vain. I already have dozens of letters from the people in the Choices Program who thank me for coming to talk to them and help save their lives. Dear Keith, I wanted to tell you how much it meant that you would take time out of your day to come and talk to us. You have brought light into the lives of many men and women who have been living in their own darkness. I know God sent you and I thank him nightly. I am not afraid to live anymore and I owe that to you. I didn't save their lives. Maybe the story was the catalyst to help them change. Okay, I get that. Now I know it, I've lived it, I have to do more. I've started a foundation that's called Pedaling to Stop Pushing, where I plan on riding my bicycle from St. Louis to California and back. The journey for me is about getting the word out and educating people. That was a clip from the short documentary Pedaling to Stop Pushing that I created for my, my buddy Keith. Keith Dickerson, he... Um, he lost his son to a heroin overdose. He's taken a bad situation, and he's made something good with it. He's been speaking at the St. Louis County Choices Program. This is a program that gives people who have arrests related to drugs, it gives them a second chance. And well, what do we think? When we, when we hear someone is a drug addict, what is our thoughts of that person? Who is this person? The general thoughts or comments we see on a Facebook is that these... You know, these people are the dregs of society. And are they really? I mean, this is somebody's son or daughter or husband or wife or it's a parent. Uh, you know, what? how did they get into drugs? What happened? And we will hear about this. Brad Evans, he is someone who is a drug addict. You know, he clearly states, I'm a drug addict. So he's recovering, though. He's recovering. He has been sober for a number of years. And, and he's really turned his life around. So this is a guy that at one point might have been that person that we'd look at and say, this guy is a criminal or he's worthless scum. I mean, that's not my view, but that's some things that I think society views people as in, in the United States. When we look at countries in Europe, it's a little different. We, we read about, I read about the rehabilitation programs they have, and, and it's just, I'm not there, so I can only go with what I read about. Maybe at one point we'll have a conversation with somebody that is over in those countries and talk about their programs, but we look at somebody like Brad, we talk to Brad, and he's turned his life around. He now has a successful business, and he, he's speaking at the Choices Program as well. And he's just doing good work, and he's trying to reach out and help other people. And it's the first time I met him. This conversation, I've heard about him. I've heard a lot of good things about him. This is the first time that I had a, had a chance to speak with him and really get to know this guy. And he, and he seems like just a great person. And I'm glad to see that he had that second chance, and he was able to turn his life around. 
I met Keith uh, a few years ago. He's part of a project uh, that I'm developing called It's a Hard Rock Life. Uh, I've also created the aforementioned Pedaling to Stop Pushing documentary and have given him some advice uh, concerning his foundation or his charity project, Pedaling to Stop Pushing, his ride to life. You'll hear me talk about that in this conversation. Uh, Keith lost his son, Garrett. And it's just been a tragic experience, but he, every day he tries to make the most of it and tries to be a helpful guy, keep his chin up and, and live life as best as he can. Both men have, are just courageous. Both men are very giving and I'm really proud to know both of them. Keith recently went down to Jefferson City, Missouri. We talk a little bit about that. He is trying to help get some policies pushed through as I guess you could say an activist as a citizen that really cares. There's some things being held up. We talk about it in the conversation. You'll learn a little bit about that. He's active in changing the policy and helping people who are dealing with drug addiction because he doesn't want to see, he in his heart, he doesn't want to see someone else's son or daughter go through this. Or, or it, really, he doesn't want to see another parent have to deal with the, just the nightmare that he's dealt with and just all the pain. So he's doing his best to help change these policies so that will not happen. Uh, when we recorded this conversation, it was on a, a nice sunny day. Afterwards, a couple days later, I heard from Brad, and he said, Hey, Ken, did, did Keith, uh, Keith tell you that while we were recording, my brother, he went into the hospital. He OD'd on drugs. Really sad. It's great to see that Brad's changed his life, but uh, it's kind of sad that his brother's still stuck into that. He'll talk about his relationship with his brother in the conversation show, you'll get some insight to that. It's it's a tough subject, but one we need to speak about. Keith also mentions that when Garrett, his son, was going through the drug addiction, they kind of kept silent with it and didn't really tell a lot of people. So when Garrett passed, when he, he died from the overdose, his grandparents didn't know anything about it. it. It's a taboo subject that a lot of people do not want to talk about. But if we don't talk about it, we can never heal. You know, what brings him into the drug addiction and, and how we can, what we can do to change these things in life. Before we get into the conversation, I want to say a few words about a few of our sponsors. As always, thank you for listening. I'm hoping you're enjoying the show. Would love to hear from you on social media. If you were looking for that one-of-a-kind custom piece of jewelry, then you need to speak to my good friend Kevin Blumenkamp. Kevin has been a huge supporter of my work over the years and this show, and I'm honored to have him as a sponsor. He's, he's passionate about his craft. What more can I say? He earned a master's degree in metals, and he's also trained as a blacksmith. He taught for, for a few years at an artisan center in eastern Kentucky, and he continues to live up near the beautiful mountains. I've included a link to uh, show you a picture of a table he recently created for our good friend Christy Holman. It's just an amazing piece of craftsmanship it's has moving parts it's what he does and what he does well give kevin a call at 314-346-6498 see what he can create for you after a conversation with chris blair the listening room episode 12 for those of you who haven't heard it we spoke about kevin's work and, and chris asked if kevin is able to create a branding iron to burn the listening room's logo into stakes which i think would be really cool and this is, of course, something Kevin can do. And whether or not you're eating a steak at the listening room with a branded logo or not, it's it's going to be a great tasting steak. The venue has an incredible menu. So when, when you go to hear Nashville's hottest songwriters, your ears won't be the only sense delighted. 
Chris Blair has been cooking for many years and has a great new chef. And I've always enjoyed my experiences there and had a blast at the 10th anniversary celebration. The food was great, and it was just an amazing time. I took a ton of photos, and I'm really excited to share them with you, the listeners of Conversations with Calcaterra. Check out their website, listeningroomcafe.com, for more information. And you can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Check out my website, kencalcaterra.com. That's a hub to all those. Right now, it's in the process of getting a makeover, but... uh, It's still functional. You can find out a little bit more about me and link to some of the great people that I'm talking to here on the show. So now we're ready to jump into the conversation I had with Brad Evans and my good friend Keith Dickerson. How did the two of you first become friends? Well, I uh, wound up speaking at the St. Louis County Jail Choices Program just a few months after my son Garrett passed from the heroin overdose. And... um, I was invited there by one of my neighbors at the time who said that he was doing a, uh, what do you call it, an internship to become a drug and alcohol abuse counselor. And he asked me if I, if I thought about talking at the Choices Program. And I said, well, I never really thought about, you know, I thought, who, who cares? You know, my son died. Nobody cares except me and the family. But so after a few months of that, he finally got me up there to speak. And then when I did, the first time I spoke, uh, I met this young man, Brad Evans, was one of the few people that was in the class that day. And since then, we've become friends. And Brad, so you you were able to, you were in the program and you saw Keith speak. So you just had met him at that point. What was, what did you observe from Keith and what were, what were your thoughts when you were hearing him speak? At first, I, we've seen a couple speakers come through and, uh, you know, some of them, you know, you just... Uh, you, their, their point really just doesn't come across like Keith's did. Um, I remember uh, Keith sat down and uh, it took him about 10 minutes to get his, his name out. You know, um, he just kept uh, bawling. Um, at first, you know, you, you really don't know, you know, what, what's going on. And then all of a sudden you just see him just start start crying. We didn't even know why he was there or, or you know, what had happened. Um, finally Keith, uh, broke down and started telling me about his son and all of a sudden, uh, you know, his son was about the exact same age as, as me. Um, so, you know, everything started clicking at that time I had some sober time and, you know, I was thinking clear and then, uh, you know, I pretty much just, I, I seen Keith almost as like, uh, you know, like what my parents would go through if they had to go through the same thing. And I've seen Keith, I had the privilege of creating the, the documentary, Pedaling to Stop Pushing, a little story about him, a short documentary, and we were able to film at the uh, at the Choices Program. So I, I did get to experience that. And one of the things, Keith, that, that you say in the documentary, and you tell me just in times we're speaking about this, is that every time that you get up there, it tears your guts out. Um, this is true. Brad just gave an example of that it's it's a tough subject that it takes you 10 minutes to really start what i mean why do it if, if it tears your guts out every time what what's the purpose of going there if it's that if it's that difficult um well i i guess it's because i i had no idea i had no clue on how much it would help others because i thought i really honestly thought nobody cared except me and my own family about my son so when i started telling the story about him 
that I noticed that it was making quite an impact and an effect on some of the people that were in the St. Louis County Jail Choices Program. Each and every time I've spoken now, it's been almost seven years, and I've spoken either 18 or 19 times. Well over a 1,000 prisoners have heard me speak. I always catch at least one or two of them that it hits home for them that They like to tell me that they'll give me credit for helping to save their lives, but I'm not going to take the credit for it. But my story seems to be a catalyst for them, like Brad just said, that it opens their eyes to the kind of pain that's left behind after they've passed, thinking nobody cares when they're a drug addict, when they're so wrong that their parents and friends and relatives love them so much that it destroys everybody else after they've passed. So that's the story I'm trying to get across is that you have no idea what you're doing to everybody else. And when they're high, they don't think about that because all they want to do is be high. And that's the nature of of those drugs. So that's why I keep going back because I've received wonderful letters and cards and drawings of people that are affected by my speaking. So even though every time I speak, I'm going to cry. I can't help it when I talk about my son's passing that it, it'll affect somebody. So if it helps one person to become uh, sober and they use my story as, as a catalyst, then I'm going to keep doing this as long as I can. So, Brad, we know, we know it affected you in, in a profound way. After Keith spoke, was, was it a conversation that you had with other members of the Choices Program? Or what was the general, just a general overview of what, what everybody was talking about after hearing this, this guy pour his guts out? You know, a few of us got together, and uh, especially my cellmate, um, which was about the same age as me. He was in there for the same reasons. Um, we had talked a few different times, and, and he had kind of said the same thing I said, is he's like, I just can't see that being my mother. You know, I, you know, him and I had talked several times um, about Keith's, uh, when he went in there and talked, and, you know, both of us exclaimed that we, we could not see that being our mother. You know, and we knew what kind of stress it put on Keith and, you know, the rest of his family. So. And now you're you're a guest speaker as well at Choices. So you've joined Keith in his efforts to help those people that are there that are they're going through. First of all, explain what the Choices program is, just to give the audience a little idea of what what it is that you went through. Choices is a 90-day um, drug treatment program in St. Louis County Jail. Um, they they base it um, solely on, you know, they really don't get into a lot of literature or anything like that for the first, you know, couple weeks because they figure a lot of people come in off of the streets and they may still have drugs in their system or whatnot. Um, so they give it a little while to get the people thinking, their minds thinking right and whatnot. So um, basically what it is, is it's just like a, it's, it's based on like a 12 step program um, that has a lot of uh, literature, a lot of reading, um, stuff like that, that just kind of finds the root of why you are an addict and why you keep continuing to use, um, gives you tools when you get out to, um, to fight the, um, the addiction and to stay clean, um, like the last two weeks you hear guest speakers like me and Keith come in there and we just hear, you know, we tell our story. Um, also they do some like, um, career day to where, you know, a lot of people may not have an out when they get out, you know, a job or nothing like that. So, you know, they, they make you get your GED while you're in there if you don't have it already. Um, so, um, there's a lot of benefits other than just the, 
you know, the knowledge of the drug treatment. So it's a rehabilitation program. Yes. Just as, I mean, we could get into the current topic of privatized prisons and how it's just a, a moneymaker, but it's it's great to see that there is this program. <clears throat> now, how did it go about the option when when you were arrested and you were you were sentenced? Did you... So it's called choices. So looking at the choices you make in life, but how, what was the choice? How did they go about giving you that option to, to be in this program or what was, what was the alternative? Okay. So when I had went to St. Louis County jail, it was uh, September 28th of 2009. Um, you know, at first when I went there, I was uh, arrested on several different felony charges stemming from drug charges, a couple of them being possession of controlled substance. So at that point, you know, I had drug charges, a lot of different other cases against me. Um, at that point, my mom got me a lawyer. You know, it, the, the process takes time. So I was in St. Louis County for about five months before um, my lawyer came to me and said, hey, this is what they're offering. They have this drug treatment program in here. If you take the drug treatment program, complete it, um, you will get SIS probation, so I won't have a felony on my record, but you have to complete this choices program. Or you could plead guilty to the charge and receive, you know, maybe do 120 day in prison, become a felon, and then get out on probation as well. So at that point, I chose the, the choices program, obviously. So now if somebody goes through the choices program then makes another mistake, do they go back to that 120? Do, does it become a felony? Um, How does that work? It, it, it all varies. It, it, it all depends on what the what the judge um, sentences you to. So, you know, some people um, that I was in the program with, they if they completed the 90 day treatment program um, at that point, they were done with their probation or it may be, you know, they have to do that as well as, you know, outpatient. It's usually just a. Um, per case basis, you know, it wasn't just once you complete it, you're done. You know, some people like me, I got out and I still had to do five years probation. So it's not like I just got out of choices and then got to roam free. Gotcha. Okay. And then, and then what was, what was your backstory as far as, well, I want to go into, to Garrett's story first and see the comparison. So Keith, your son, Garrett, he, um, he was into, he was using heroin. He yeah. died of a drug overdose. Right. And this has led you on your quest to educate and help people, which we'll get into in, in a little bit. But, but how did Garrett, what, what, how did he first get into drugs? What, what's the backstory there? Uh, well, Garrett, um, by the time we found out he was on heroin, he'd already been doing it for a while. It wasn't his first time because he OD'd and died. Oh, I'm sorry. He OD'd and was in intensive care for four days. And that's when I found out. Um, but how he got into it was a girlfriend. My son, I was so proud of him because I'm in real estate. And I buy houses and remodel them or I build them. And I've done several of them over the years. Garrett became a homeowner at age 20. He was dating a wonderful girl named Heather. And she was going to college to become a licensed nurse. And um, Garrett was well on his way. He was working at Costco, making some good money, was thinking about going into management. And then he made a few bad mistakes and was going out and partying. And his girlfriend uh, wound up leaving him. And because he was a homeowner at age 20, I, I look back on that now and I think that was probably part of the problem too. It was so much stress for such a 20-year-old tw for a mortgage and car payments and insurance. And then after his girl left him, that's when everything went downhill. 
And then he started hanging around with party girls, is what I call them. And he brought a couple of them over, and, you know, he'd ask me, well, Dad, what do you think of these girls? I'm well, I'm, you know, they're okay, but be careful with what you're doing. So the last girl he introduced me to, I don't even remember her name, but she was in rehab at the time for heroin. So he helped her get off the drug, and then she wound up getting him started on it, and she's still alive, and he's gone. So that's the ironic part of it. My son, as far as I know, was only doing it for a few months before he almost died and OD'd the first time. Nine months later, he OD'd a second time and almost died again. And then five days later, he was gone. So literally from the time I found out he was on heroin, he was gone nine months later. So he didn't get the chance to turn into a liar and a thief. And But looking back on it now, the things that I now know, uh, it's, the, you know, the old saying, 2020, hindsight's 2020 is true. So many little clues and little hints that I just didn't, didn't recognize because I just, I was in total denial. And uh, yeah, so yeah, it was a girl that helped him get on. It's usually a boyfriend or a girlfriend that gets somebody started. Yeah. And then Brad, how, how does this relate to your story? You have a similar backstory or different? What? Mine, mine's a little different. Uh, you know, I, I was, um, I'd say I was an addict since the age of 13. Um, I started using pot at 13, you know, stent, and then I started using cocaine and other prescription pills. Um, you know, I was, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I was uh, strictly an addict to one drug. I just like to party and do them all, you know, um, when I started getting into opiates heavily, uh, I got, per, I had a motorcycle accident when I was about 17 years old. Um, I got, uh, prescribed some, uh, some Percocets, um, just liked them. I remember calling the doctor saying I got more pain and, you know, over the phone, they gave me, you know, 20 more, you know, I think, you know, I went through the first batch in, in no time. Um, so it, mine stemmed from, you know, um, prescription opiates, um, you know, and those aren't as readily available sometimes as heroin is. And, you know, I started getting into uh, to heroin because I could not no longer find the um, prescription pills. They weren't as readily available as they used to be. So that's when I started using heroin. So the opiates that, that was you first got into those when a doctor prescribed them? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I did them when I was about 16, okay. but I was never a fan at, at that age. I was more of an upper, you know, cocaine and, and stuff like that. Um, wasn't really too big on, you know, the downers, you know, the opiates, but you know, I, I did try them, you know, around 16, but it's not like I did, did them quite often. You know, when I, when I turned 17 and got into um, the motorcycle accident is when I, really started getting addicted to the opiates. Gotcha. And I, I see that being an issue in our country. And Keith, in, in your quest, and we, we showed the pedaling to stop pushing mini documentary at the St. Louis Film Festival. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that uh, another program that was part of that, they were talking about a gentleman's son that he had a sports injury and then became involved with the yeah. opiates. Uh, how common in, in your guys with, with the, the talking that you're doing in choices and Keith, you've been out in high schools with some other groups. Yeah. How often do you hear that story where someone started in, you know, pharmaceuticals or medically or something that was a prescription 
and then took it to another level because they, they did become addicted. Yeah. Uh, well, the statistics now, everything I've learned, <clears throat> pardon me, everything I've learned from uh, after Garrett's passed about opiates and heroin, 85% of people that get on heroin start with legal prescription pills. And I've met so many people that, young people that have had their wisdom teeth taken out, get prescribed Percocets or Darvons or Oxycontin, whatever, it's an opiate, and they get addicted that way from through a legitimate uh, source, like if they're in an accident. I met a lady once who had never done drugs in her entire life but was in a car accident and was prescribed Oxycontins, and within a year went to heroin, and then she, her husband divorced her, lost her kids, her house, and lost everything. But she was never a drug person who partied, it was because of an accident. So there are a lot of people that start off legitimately using them from a doctor's prescription, but then if they're that one in five people on this earth that have a drug problem, not a drug problem, an addiction problem, and statistics have shown that one out of every five humans on this earth is going to have an addiction problem with some kind of a substance, but we don't, we don't know who that is. We don't have tests to show it. It's just as people start growing up and they start getting to the young, you know, uh, in their young teens and they start experimenting with things, that's when they're going to find out the one out of five who's going to go off the deep end with something and then become addicted to it. So it's huge. I mean, every time I speak, there's kids had their wisdom teeth or a football injury or in an accident, car accident, and they from there that they're that one in five and they just go crazy with it because they they've never discovered that before and then all of a sudden it changes everything in their life and then they chase that dragon it's truly chasing the dragon you know and according to a report that came out in 2015 from the uh, centers for disease control and prevention the cdc uh, they're stating that uh, those who are addicted to Prescription opiate painkillers are 40 times more likely to be addicted to heroin. I wow. mean, that's... Yeah. And it's and it's true. I mean, the, the heroin in today's world is so... It's everywhere. I mean, it's not just in inner cities. It's in the country. It's it's destroying the entire free world as we know it. Because it's there's so much, and it's so pure, and it's so cheap. And like Brad said, if they started with wisdom teeth being taken out or an accident and they were getting prescribed pills and then they can't get the pills anymore, they'll go to the heroin. And then as soon as they do that, it's, it's over. It's, it's over. They're going downhill until they either die or go to prison or lose everything. Yeah. And, and you had stated the percent, the percentage I'm looking at here, and I think you were, you're in that ballpark, 75% of new heroin users first became hooked on prescription opiates, you yes. know, the Oxycontin, the Vicodin, and then, as Brad was saying, they just okay. I can't get the prescription anymore. And that's and what happens. Here you go. And in another another stat that I'm I'm reading is between uh, it, it increased the the use of heroin increased sixty three percent between two thousand two and two thousand thirteen. And so it's basically yeah. you, you know, and then the overdose deaths have quadrupled. Yep. So they're saying in uh, two thousand thirteen, an estimated five hundred and seventeen thousand people reported they had used it in the last year, and had or had a heroin uh, related dependence, which was a one hundred fifty percent increase from two thousand seven. And then out of that, uh, more than 
82, uh, 8,200 people died from a heroin-related overdose in 2013. So, so we look at that. I mean, I guess what is the al- alternative if if you you have pain or have an accident? I mean, what's I could see doctors being ha- having that conundrum of okay, here I have this patient, they're they're in pain. That could be one thing, or it's just a matter of not really regulating it and just saying, hey, you're in pain. Here, ha- have this. You know, here's what we do, and write out that script. I mean, what what do you what's your thought on that? I I don't know what the alternative would be. Painkillers are pretty much usually opiates, but I mean, strong enough to to kill those kinds of pains. I wanted to throw this out while I was thinking about it real quick. They did a, a a poll about two years ago across the United States, the continental United States, and they polled eighth graders thousands of them from all different kinds of schools. And they asked them one question and they said, do you think it's okay to try heroin once? And the statistics show that 40% of them said yes. That's scary. This is why we have to educate our youngsters because if we all remember when we were young teenagers, we thought we knew everything and you don't. So they're, they're so willing to just try it. And it's always a friend or a relative who says, here, try this. And they won't tell them. In today's world, a lot of times they won't tell them it's heroin. They'll just tell them, "Here, this will this this will help you." And it's it's alarming. It's absolutely just it's it's alarming that forty percent of our eighth graders right now think it's okay to try it once. And I've heard of people trying it once at sixteen and dying. And then there's people who can do it for four decades and they're still alive. So there's no rhyme or reason. The drug itself doesn't care how smart you are, whether you went to college or high school, what color, race, creed, or religion. It'll kill you. It doesn't matter. So we have to educate our young ones. It's it's a lot easier to educate them to never start than it is to try and rehabilitate them because the statistics show 97% of heroin addicts relapse. Only three quit cold turkey and never touch it again. Only 3%. And that's just alarming as heck. It's, it's, you know, it makes me cry. So that's why I have to keep speaking. I'll keep speaking as long as I'm able to. And if somebody will listen and it might help them, so be it. I have to. I'd like to add this. <clears throat> uh, in my experience, most of the, um, the, the deaths from using is a result from someone either trying to get clean um, whether being forced upon them through um, probation or something like that, and then them getting out and trying to use maybe the same amount that they used to, or they get incarcerated and then they get out and do the same thing. You know, I, I, I'm 30 years old and I have over 30 friends and acquaintances that have died from a heroin overdose. And I'd say wow. a large percentage oh, of those, yeah. um, a large percentage of those were people that actually um were either in jail and got out and used or um, they either did another drug along with it, Xanax, um, volumes, alcohol. Those are all contributing to, you know, the heroin death as well. And, that, and that's one of the things <laughs> that I, in my research looking at this was that, yeah, there a lot of times it was a mixture. And then also now they're cutting it with fentanyl. Fentanyl. Yeah. See, and I knew Keith, you would you would have the the stats. Yeah. So That's then it's the strongest painkiller on earth right now. Yeah. And what's what's the percentage that they're doing that, that they're cutting it yeah. in? I mean, that seems like it's just. I don't know the percentage, but it doesn't take much. Yeah. It doesn't take much at all. It's that Garrett's, powerful. Garrett's had fentanyl in it. Wow. 
And we look at that now. Now, one thing, Keith, that you've been doing, and, and I don't know, Brad, we just met. If, if you're an advocate or if you, you're you're out, um, I, I guess, petitioning our legislators. Uh, one thing in, in 49 states, so we're in the state of Missouri, yeah. 49 other states, they have a, a program that monitors prescription drug programs. So it's it's a database and it just looks at you know, pharmacists can, can consult it and make sure that, that they're not buying extra. So it's something, you know, system of checks and balances. Correct. Uh, some look at it, some legislators look at it as, as an invasion of privacy. And that's one way a lot of people say, hey, there's too much government and I should be able to do what I want. I mean, what's what are your guys' views on that? Do you think that's a helpful program or do you think it is an invasion of privacy and, and the government has has no reason or no justification to do this, and, and people should just fend for themselves. What are your thoughts, Keith? My thoughts are, since the other 49 states already do this, they monitor it for a reason, because they call it doctor shopping. When the people are looking for pills that are like, they'll go from one pharmacy to the next, to the next, to the next, and then try and get their prescriptions filled. So the monitoring program will see who's abusing these, and for that reason, then they won't fill those prescriptions and they'll probably save lives in so doing. And there's, out of all 50 states, Missouri is the only one that hasn't passed this yet. And there's a reason for it. And there's one particular, I believe he's a senator and a physician and uh, a lot of different things. And his name's Rob Scharf here in uh, the state of Missouri. Yeah, he's from St. Joseph. He's from a Re- Republican from by, St. Uh, Joseph. Kansas City. Yeah, North. And he personally has filibusted this bill twice now in the last few years. <clears throat> and uh, my, in my mind, there can only be one reason for that. He doesn't want to be monitored. And if he's using the excuse of the government's too much in my business and I don't want them knowing how many prescriptions I give out, then somehow then there's something going on behind the scenes that uh, either he's making money somehow by prescribing more, or he just doesn't care about who he prescribes to, how much he prescribes, or who dies from it. So this particular person is the one reason that this hasn't passed yet. Now, next Tuesday on February 23rd, 2016, there's a couple hundred of us leaving to go down to Jefferson City for Drug Advocacy Day, and we're going to try and get these bills pushed through. That's one of the bills, the drug monitoring program for uh, the prescription use and the pharmacies to keep track of who's getting what. The other one is the Good Samaritan bill that it says right now in the state of Missouri that if a person, if people are sitting around shooting heroin and somebody's watching somebody die, rather than take them to the hospital and try and save their lives, they'll sit there and let them die because they don't want to get in trouble when they drop them off at the hospital because the police will come out and go, you've been using, we're going to arrest you to hell with you bringing this guy and saving his life. So if we pass that bill also, then people who are partying, if they see somebody dying, because my son almost died in somebody's basement before we found him and he was turning blue already before we got him to the hospital and he would have laid there and died because the other people don't want to get in trouble. So if somebody has the wherewithal, even if they're high, to get somebody to the hospital and drop them off to help save their lives, at least that time, they should not get in trouble. Let them go on their way. Well, there's a lot of people who argue that, that no, they should be in trouble, arrest them and put them in jail. Okay, well, I, I think differently about that. So that's the Good Samaritan bill. Then the other one is, um, okay, the 
sharing of information. Let me comment real quick on the Good Samaritan bill. And uh, one thing in in a class, documentary class I'm teaching, I um, I shared your story, and one of the students, the story she was going to write was on, I guess it was a, a friend's brother who had a situation where they didn't take somebody in. So if they take somebody in, they're in trouble. And then this person, I guess, died at their house. Right. And then I, I believe from what she she had said in her synopsis that this guy eventually went to jail for not helping this guy. So it's kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Right. So right. I, I think that's a good piece of legislation that it's just like, all right, you guys are screwing up, but don't let somebody die. Right. And then the third bill that we're trying to get passed is third parties being accessible to Narcan. Narcan is the one drug that immediately counteracts opiate uh, overdoses. So there, ha- I've heard from, I have two paramedic friends of mine who say they've been out on calls many, many times for heroin overdoses. And they'll take Narcan and wake this person up who's just about dead from a heroin overdose. And that person will wake up and go, wow, man, you ruined my buzz. And now they're straight again from the Narcan and then they're going to go out and get high again. So some people's argument to the Narcan third party access say, well, if everybody has access to it, then everybody's going to party more on the heroin knowing that they can get saved at any time. And that is absolutely the wrong way to look at this. You know, it's that can save lives also. So all three of these bills, which my good friends, I want to mention Chad Sabora and Robert Riley II, who started uh, MoNetwork.org, which is short for Missouri Network for Opiate Reform and Recovery, are doing wonderful and amazing things trying to get these three bills passed. And all three of them will help save lives. We've got to, we've got to educate young people. We, this is what it's all about is education. And unfortunately, this show is will will come out the the day or two after that. So we won't. We'll have to get an update from you, or maybe through social media. Sure, that's something you can update the listeners on what's happening with that. And and that is you know that yeah. situation. And your website pedalingtostoppushing dot org. Yes, sir. Right. Okay. Oh, I, yeah. I've I've typed it up a bunch of times, but it's been a while. Yeah, so and me I didn't want to want to make sure with all the dot com TV dot this and that. Right. Want to make sure I have that right. And then people can find out that the listeners can find more about you, about your efforts. We're gonna talk a minute about pedaling to stop pushing. But uh I, I just want to finish up talking about this legislation and how even with uh, so so Shaft put in a, a bill, put in some more protections for privacy. Okay, I get it. And then, you know, part of the problem is the Senate, the Missouri Senate puts right. in a bill, the House puts in another bill, and then they run out of time and it doesn't get to the other Correct. chamber. And then we lose it and then they get distracted by some other politician or a former politician, yep. you know, caught with his pants down doing something he shouldn't. And then that, the hypocrisy, I mean, we could, we, we could talk for hours on that. But we look at it, so now they have, he puts forth this bill saying, all right, there's some protection. So it's a new bill. And then we get we get Senator Ed Emery, who's a Republican from, from Lammer, right? and I don't know where that is. It's I'm sure it's a rural area, um, who's a strong opponent of the monitoring program, saying there's a good chance he's going to try to filibuster the bill if it's brought back next year, even with the privacy protections that, that were added. I, I just think yeah. in this state, my commentary, it seems like we're so ass-backwards. We are. <laughs> to get anything in. Like, what the hell's going you know, on? The show me state. I mean, really, <laughs> you know. 
Yeah. So we look at that, and that's that's good work that you're doing in, in trying to push that through. Brad, have you have you participated in any in going to the Capitol and trying to get some of these things passed? I ha- I haven't done anything like that. I just I continue to go to the uh, Choices Program <clears throat> once every uh, three and a half months. I go for about the last uh, I'd say five and a half years. Um, you know, after you get out of jail, you have to wait a year till you can actually go back and, as a guest speaker. And uh, I don't miss it. I've, I think I've missed it once and I was on vacation or something, but I, I make it every time. Well, it's great. But as a former user, how, how do you feel about the legislation that, that Keith was just describing? I think that the, especially with the Narcan and the Good Samaritan, um, I've seen uh, plenty of cases firsthand where people were overdosing and, uh, you know, a, a good friend of mine um, passed away because uh, no one wanted to get in trouble and take him to the hospital. Now, they didn't claim that, um, but we, we all know that that's, that's one of the reasons why he was never taken to the hospital. Um, you know, I've seen firsthand what Narcan can do. Um, you know, my brother died in my arms, uh, or it's overdosed in my arms, turning blue, like he described, and, uh, you know, I called the uh, 911 immediately with drugs on me, on him, everywhere around. Um, I wasn't afraid to go to prison or whatever just to save my brother or another life. Um, but, you know, the cops showed up and, you know, believe it or not, the cops were more worried about saving his life than worrying about the drugs, if any, we had on us. So um, I think if more people were educated on the fact that um, you know, if, if someone does, if you choose to use heroin with a group of friends, um, and you think that one of them is overdosing, um, I think it's beneficial to know that, uh, you know, you can call 911, get that person treatment and help without everyone going to jail and ruining your life, you know? So either way, it's going to ruin your life. If you sit back and you let that friend die, you know, it's going to haunt you forever. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's it's a tough tough situation, and, and we look at as you had stated, Keith. There's it's now it's not just the poor that are using this; it's, it's more people in more affluent areas. Oh yeah, you, the the big the fastest growing demographic is white females and white males between the ages of eighteen to twenty four, and that's that makes up that's more than than all the other ones put together. Young suburbanites who just you know have have everything and just it's so prevalent everywhere and they they just they they try it like back in my time you know I I like I said I'm no angel I tried a lot of things when I was younger but we smoked pot a lot but they do this now like we used to smoke pot they they'll, they'll try heroin just like that and that's the part that's that's so scary. Like you said, 40% of eighth graders say they think it's okay to try it once because I remember when I used to look at life like, I'll try anything once and if I don't like it, I won't do it again. That's very dangerous. That is a very dangerous way to oh, look at life. Especially with heroin. I, heroin I, I've told your story at times at, at film festivals and at different you know, different places right. around the country. And I, I talk about Garrett's story, what you're doing with pedaling and People are like, whoa, yeah, man, I've done some drugs in, in the past, but heroin is one thing. Older people that right. I never touched. And, and now it just seems like it's not that big of a deal. Exactly. Because, uh, I guess, of the uneducation or it's just a, more of a common thing, Yeah, which is 
really scary. And here's another scary statistic, and this is true. You can look it up. Uh, in 2013, I haven't looked at 2014 or 15 yet, but in 2013, Afghanistan produces 75% of the world's heroin, and in 2013, they produced 12 and a half million pounds of pure heroin. That was enough in 2013 to kill every human on earth, all 7 billion of us. That's every year. Every year, they call acres, what, what we call an acre over here, they call a hectare, but it's like an acre, and every year they plant more and more poppies. So I don't know about 2014 and 2015, but I guarantee you it's more than 12 and a half million pounds. And only the free world does heroin. You're never going to find people that are in third world countries that are dying from thirst and food, not enough food and water, using drugs because they just want to try and live each day. They're looking for food and water just to survive. So you know what I'm saying? It's, it's the free world. It's the industrialized countries that are using these drugs. And Afghanistan produces 75%. And we already know that they don't like the Western, you know, Western people being us. So one of the best ways to destroy a country from the inside out would be to poison them all with a drug. And slowly but surely, we're raising a generation that is getting addicted to painkillers and or heroin or both. And if our young people now with that new bill, they can give 11-year-olds Oxycontin. This is terrible. This is terrible. Yeah, we, we look at that. So so now it's to the point and, you know, I've got to get my facts straight here. But yeah, I looked in the, in the Washington, I found an article in the Washington Post. I find them to be a credible, credible source. But yeah, now it's to the point where 11 to 16 year olds can, they're setting it up to, to I don't know what the laws were previously, but now it's acceptable mm -hmm. for pain to, to distribute that. Uh, one thing here, you know, people on social media have accused the FDA of acting irresponsibly, putting the interest of OxyContin's manufacturer, Purdue Pharma, ahead yeah. of the welfare of children who they're worried will become addicted to the drug. And then yeah. as as Brad had stated, then you can't get the get the drug, the OxyContin anymore. Right. And then what do you do? You go to the street and you get heroin, which which with everything else that's yeah. involved with it, and then, then it's just a cycle it just keeps going on. Big Pharma definitely has a huge hand in this because if you think about it, we're a capitalist society. So we're, we're out to make money. So if a big pharmaceutical company develops a new drug and then it gets passed by the FDA, they don't care uh, who it's going to kill. They just want to sell as much of it as possible to make money. So there's the bottom line with that. So the FDA is saying in, in its defense that uh, with the recent approval that it wasn't intended to expand the use of opioids in children, but rather to give doctors better guidelines about how to use OxyContin and safety in pediatric patients. Okay, that might be a true statement that it wasn't for expansion of the use, but that's what's happening. Sure. That's what's happening. And we look at it in, in Brad's case and in other cases where you hear somebody, you guys have talked about the case of wisdom teeth. Brad, t tell the story you had told me a little earlier about now that you're you're clean and you had some wisdom teeth pulled. Tell your story. Or it was the, you had a couple accidents because you work in construction, you're an active guy. 
I'm probably mixing it up. Let, let's have you hear that. The, tell that. But one of my greatest fear as a recovering addict um, is getting injured and to the point to where I, you know, they the doctors would want me to to take some type of uh, opiate. Um, I sprained my ankle about, uh, I'd say about nine months after I got out of jail. I had been clean probably about, uh, you know, almost 20 months at that point. And uh, I'm clean from everything. I don't use alcohol, marijuana. I am 100% clean and sober. I refuse to put anything in my body. Um, at this point, I'd sprained my ankle. I'd like to say it was a football injury, but I was playing badminton. And uh, <laughs> so uh, I. Uh, that's I, a rough sport. <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, Too I. intense, man. Too exactly. Intense. So I, I sprained my ankle and I had a, you know, it swelled from my toes to my knee. And, uh, you know, I went to the hospital. The first thing that the, uh, the, the nurse and doctor want to do is, you know, intravenously give me, um, I don't know if it was Demerol or some type of painkiller, which I told them no way. Um, at that point, uh, you know, I told them I wouldn't take anything and at that, you know, they were trying to get me to calm down, um, because I was, you know, obviously probably screaming hysterically, um, and I just, I refuse to take it. You know, I ride dirt bikes, four wheelers with my son. Um, you know, injuries are common and that type of stuff. And I just, I sit back and I think, you know, if I go to the hospital, even if my bones popping out of my body, I probably will refuse any type of pain treatment. I just deal with it. My, my son broke his arm at the age of 10 and they prescribed him 20, either Vicodin or Percocet. We threw him away, you know. Um, there's no reason that a 10 year old, I, I gave him a leave, you know, there's yeah. no reason at 10 years old, you need Vicodin. Yes. And, and, thank and how you. did the leave work for him? It worked great. You know, yeah. he, he complained a little bit, but I mean, you know, through life, you're going to have pain, you know, <laughs> and that's just, that's just the facts of life, you know, made him stronger. He's good as his, his, um, his arms fine, you know, a couple weeks with pain. I mean, he, he functioned just fine. Went to school, you know, didn't complain. So, you know, when you said about an 11 year old now being able to be prescribed Oxycontins, I sit back and think of when they try to prescribe my son or they did prescribe my son, you know, Vicodin, I just sit back and I just shake my head. Brad Evans just spoke uh, that he wouldn't give them to his son when his son had a broken arm. It's, it's just too easy to get addicted. It's just too easy to get addicted and, and to go into this downward spiral. You know, Brad dealt with it. Uh, you know, he he didn't start with prescriptions, but it led to that. And there's just a lot of other options. If you find yourself in a car accident or having back pains from from some other type of accident, one of those options is Dr. Mark Holland. Dr. Holland is committed to helping his patients become pain free with no drugs. He and his colleagues have years of experience in the practice of chiropractic and have four wellness clinics in the St. Louis area. Pain relief is one of their missions, and and they're dedicated to helping you live a pain-free life. Find out more information at mystlouischiropractor.com and chiroandrehab.com. I really believe that stress is one of the major killers in the United States, and hearing Keith talk about how stressed out his son Garrett was dealing with owning the house at a young age and trying to do the right thing with his bills and avoid bankruptcy, how stressed out he was and and how to relieve that stress, he turned to drugs. Uh, often Americans turn to substances to alleviate stress, and 
one of Keith's personal stress relievers is playing the drums. We don't speak about it in this conversation, but you can observe him in other videos, uh, link to the show description. Keith has been playing drums since he was a kid, and it's a form of meditation for him. Would you like to experience a meditation such as this, or do you have a youngster in your life who you want to see experience the joy of playing music? St. Louis residents look no further than Dale's Music in North County. Dale's has been serving area musicians for over 20 years. If you've been playing for a while not looking for lessons and you have an instrument that is in need of service, then Dale's has you covered. They can make an old instrument new again. It's, it's wonderful. Google them to check out the reviews, but better yet, give them a call and talk to one of their knowledgeable staff. Greg Smith is a friend of mine. You can give him a call, but anybody can help you. They're all great. You won't regret it. 314-895-3403. Dale's Music. And part of that, when at that age, the the brain is still developing, oh, yeah. and it just has, I mean, really harmful to start to, to have opiates or, or have anything like that at that age, and it's just scary. Now, you said you just you threw it away. Yeah. Now, you, but you were telling me earlier, you disposed of it. I mean, there's ways you can take pharmaceuticals such as this to the to the police station where it's it's incinerated is correct what keith right. was saying correct yeah yeah so just it, it's just a good thing i don't think a lot of people know about that and i've i've had somebody prescribe you know i thought i had a spider bite at one point and on my elbow and it was inflamed it wasn't pain but i wanted to get it checked so i go to the emergency room and that's the doctor says, oh, you have some kind of something itis maybe a tendonitis and like okay well if i have that it's really not painful my reason for going was to make sure, yeah, if this is a spider bite, I don't need all that tissue deteriorating. And let's just, hey, I have insurance. Let's be precautious about right. it. And that's one thing. He wrote a script. I don't even know what it was because now there's so many generic names and everything else. And I ask a lot of questions. And at that point, I, I don't recall what questions I had asked or what this was. But, you know, I kept this stuff in a drawer. And then at Earth Day, they had it where the DEA had a part of the recycling of Earth Day. Right took these so i had a a box i held on to them until i could get rid of them the right way because i find too many people these days are flushing things in the toilet and it's it's getting in our water supply and never flush it down the toilets yeah we're getting it that way proper ways to get rid of it's a public public service announcement if you you know first of all don't even get that prescription filled because you're you know that could be a dangerous course and then then if you do and, and you use some of these cause it, and the quantity that they give it and i think that's part of what with this bill to monitor that yeah. i mean it's like the quantity then you have extras and somebody's like hey let me get one of those and oh, it's just it's a horrible course but when we look at we look at that with these kids doing it and there was um senator joe uh mansion the third in Manchine, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, but he's a Democrat in West Virginia, and there's Virginia's having a lot of problems right now, as as a lot of states are with heroin. Uh, he, you know, his state has especially been hit hard lately with prescription drug abuse, and he wrote a letter telling the FDA it should be absolutely ashamed of itself for this reckless act and warned that the decision could lead to the poisoning of our children's brain, setting them up for future drug abuse, and called for a Senate investigation into the decision. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, where, where's the oversight? Is this and it was something that was never brought to the people, or there was there was nothing that was, hey, here's a deal, let's do a study. And any studies that happen, it seems, they put that on the drug company who has the most 
to gain from it Correct. and say, hey, you guys do these studies and let us know. And I think that's just a dangerous it's, course because there's a ton biased. of bias there. It's total bias. A ton bias. of bias. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's just like, wait a second. I'm going to lose billions of dollars. So, all right. Yeah. yeah am I going to do an accurate study? I mean, you would hope that that people would, but I don't know. With the greed and everything, I just don't have a lot of faith. Yeah, and I'm the that's, same that's way. my personal personal view on that. I'm getting a little more not the keys here. I'm getting a little more um, <laughs> yeah poignant on on how I feel about things. This is a it's a breakthrough with the podcast. But yeah, we look at that, and one thing you're doing, Keith, is you're getting out there and speaking. You've started pedaling to stop pushing, so. With pedaling to stop pushing, that one of your big goals is to ride your bicycle across the country from St. Louis to San Diego and back. I, I would still want to do that. I got sidetracked, but and I understand that. that. And, we, and we've talked about it. And that's one thing where you know I've told you many times that the fact that you're out there speaking that is part of the essence of, of pedaling to stop pushing. Yeah. I mean, the ride, the life is is important, and I know you'll do it at some point. But I think. Sometimes the little things. Oh yeah, that, I'll start here and, and yeah. work up to it. Yeah, yeah. and when you spoke to, when you met Brad, was pedaling to stop pushing a thing? No. I think no. I was the first uh, group that Keith had spoke for. Oh wow! Yeah, and you've spoken to how many groups now, Keith? I think it's nineteen. Nineteen, and that's every three and a half months. Yeah. So, so it's amazing. So with this thing, and I just look at it. Sometimes we have these big goals. And maybe we were not. I'm not well, on the bike, but you're you're doing it, man. And yeah. I just want people to know that you're that you're doing it. And maybe it's a, some smaller rides through through the state just to to get the same impact. Uh, maybe ride next week well, uh, if it's yeah. warm weather. You can ride down do to the, the Katy Trail to Clinton and back. That would be yeah. a good first one. Yeah, and just get people together and get get that right. message. And, and the whole thing is about education. You know, we've definitely. Gotta, you know, we got to get rid of the apathy. There's so many people who just don't care, and they'll go, "This doesn't affect me. My kids are okay. My family's okay." Well, they couldn't be any more wrong. This affects everybody because the addict who's a a full time addict, and that's all they're doing. They, they're stealing, lying, cheating, they're robbing, and it creates more crime. So, and then they, they could very well come to that person's door who says, this doesn't affect me any. They could, they could get held up by gunpoint for their watches and jewels and money or whatever. I mean, the, the active addict, as Brad will tell you, they find ways to get the drug. Where there's a will, there's a way. And they'll lie, cheat, and steal from their own mom and dad. They'll sell their heirlooms they'll sell they'll sell their mom and dad i mean i've heard stories of women who will hand their baby over to a drug dealer for a fix i've heard of people that i mean i'm gonna say it they'll they'll have sex acts with animals to get their fix where somebody who's who's holding the drug says oh yeah we'll go over here and do this and i'll give you a hit it's amazing to me but when people are lost on a drug they'll do anything to get that high back. And so we've it's education, education, education for the youngsters, and it's rehabilitation for the ones who are, we've got to stop throwing them in, in jail because we have to educate them. You know, we got to get them jobs. We've got to get them ways, you know, to, to come back into society and be a, an integral part of being part of society again instead of taking away from it. So I'm going to add something real quick, Keith. Um, 
a lot of people think that the drugs don't touch them because it doesn't affect them directly. And, you know, I'm on social media quite a bit, just on Facebook and whatnot. And I seen a post the other day about some people, somebody saying about uh, a couple heroin addicts that were from, uh, you know, down south somewhere. They drove four hours to get uh, heroin. It was recent and they found uh, overdosed not dead, but they got brought back by Narcan yeah. from administered by the um, paramedics. And, uh, you know, I had read their posts and I go, you know, I don't feel sorry for these worthless junkies, right. blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I really, I wasn't going to comment, but I started looking at some of the comments people were commenting. I seen this lady uh, and, and her profile picture, it was her and her little boy. And she goes, I don't feel sorry for these worthless people, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, saying some mean stuff. And all I commented was, you know, um, you would, it would affect you when, if your son ever chooses to use drugs at that point, then you would have sympathy for a drug user. You know, she could do all the right things in life and, you know, give her kid the nicest clothes, you know, the best schools, you know, all this, it doesn't make a difference. That kid could grow up with all the best education, the best tools to not be a drug addict. And at that point he may just choose that path, you know? So I sit back and I think of, you know, people not having sympathy towards, you know, drug use. Um, you know, it's it's a disease, you know. Um, I think it, it has some of it has to do with hereditary. Um, I just addictive think that, person. Yeah, there's an exactly. addictive gene. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I was, you know, I have it. You know, my father was an addict. Uh, he died. He fell off a ladder when he was drunk, you know, fell off a ladder over two flights of steps drunk you know so to to add to that brad um the thing when people think like that see that's part of the stigma too ken is everybody thinks that if somebody's doing heroin they're a useless human being Mm -hmm. and they couldn't be more wrong and that's part of the stigma we got to get rid of because it there's uh i mean chad sabura who started moanetwork.org was a fully licensed a uh lawyer in cook county chicago illinois and his story, when I heard his story, I, I just can't believe that, first of all, he's still alive, but he is. He's been clean and sober for years now. He's the co-founder of Mo Network. But he shot heroin in the bathroom and would come out and argue a case in front of a judge for his client who was there for heroin. And I'm like, holy cow, that's how strong this stuff is. So yeah. he lost his license. He lost everything, lost his wife, his kids, his house, lived in a million-dollar home, and lost everything. Went to jail, embarrassed his whole family. His father was a huge, big-time lawyer in, in Cook County, Chicago. But now he's clean and sober, and he's coming back, and he's an integral part of this education mm-hmm. program, trying to get these bills going and trying to help people because this guy has six degrees. He's incredibly smart, mm-hmm. but it almost took him almost yeah. took his life. Yeah, and we look at, and it, you know, we have to be empathetic, and that's the thing I teach in in these documentary classes and this narrative journalism. It's knowing more of the story, not just looking at the headline, this guy died from heroin, or Keith's son died from heroin, and then somebody says, well, if it was my, my son, yeah. I'd beat the shit out of him so they got off of heroin. It's, it doesn't work. It's knowing no. the deeper story. It's looking at... Looking at the case with with Purdue, the pharmaceutical, the OxyContin, in 2007, several of their executives pleaded guilty to falsely marketing it in a way that played down the drug's risk of addiction and potential for abuse. And then they paid 
635 million to resolve criminal and civil charges related to it. Yeah. So I, what I see here is they paid 635 million, but how many billions did they make? Exactly. When, because people thought, well, this isn't that bad, you know, the marketing and and unfortunately in this country a lot of the it's because time and however whatever else a lot of the education to these doctors and these drugs is from pharmaceutical reps who it's been proven are cheerleaders because they want these very good looking women with with these personalities that you're just like wow yeah okay well, what is it give me the pamphlet right and we look at that and and i coined the term i think i coined the term we're talking to david carson on a few podcasts emotional media and people see that and then they immediately say oh this person is a dreg to society yeah. When we don't know the full story, and it's you have to know the full story yeah. to really know. Maybe some people are, and but others, it's the case of oh wait, I broke my arm, and you know I fell off my bike when I was eleven, and then uh, the doctor gave me this, and I became addicted. And it's like yeah. that is sad. Also, and, I'd like to add real quick, um, you know, addiction goes further than just the worthless junkie in the bathroom in a dirty bathroom in the city shooting dope you know um, middle class America you know um, stay at home moms mm -hmm. you know it, it goes it goes beyond that you know to where you know just because you're prescribed it from a doctor doesn't mean you're not an addict you know I mean yeah. it, it, you, mm -hmm. you're still an addict I can go and get any prescription I want right now from any doctor you know it takes five minutes on Google you know, and and you could get you could literally walk out of here and with within an hour, I could have any type of narcotic I wanted. You know, and that's where, you know, we need to draw the line and figure something out mm -hmm. because everybody can get drugs if they want it. Yeah, we look at some Scandinavian countries where it's for addicts. They 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 have rehabilitation right. programs. Yes. Here, if you look at in the United States with a privatized prison system, if somebody has a few ounces of pot. Then they're serving, I don't know, yeah. five years, 10 years, and then the family is broken up. Uh, another thing, do you think in our country we have we have such this high level of what it, what it means to be successful and maybe there's a low self-worth or we can't keep up with, with these expectations of who we're supposed to be and what kind of car we're supposed to drive and what kind of house? Yeah. Just, Keith, you had mentioned Garrett at 20, had a house, had a nice car in the stressors. And then his girlfriend presented this, and that was maybe something to deal with the stressors. Maybe it was something. Yeah, well, after he was starting to go into bankruptcy and foreclosure and all that at age 22, that's when he started on heroin. Because he was trying to be a man and still hold up his, his end of the bargain by making the mortgage and, and doing all that. And I remember telling him, son, let it go. You're young enough to start over. This is, no, this is stuff. Let it go. You can replace this later. But, um, you know, it's, it was so, so stressful. Another part of the stigma, too, I wanted to mention, as a father who lost a son to heroin, believe it or not, there are people I've met since my son died who look at me as the failure. And that is so, it's so unfair. I already have enough guilt and regret. But uh, for somebody to look at me and go, and you failed as a father, that's tough to handle. You know, it was like, because I thought I did everything. I thought we did everything right, you know, taught him right from wrong and did all that. He had a loving home. But that's that's hard to handle because I felt it firsthand. People 
Like, you know, I have a stigma along with it because I was the father. Like, you failed big time, dude. You know, it's it's probably probably your fault. And uh, as I know now, you know, maybe there's little things that I could have done. But if a drug addict wants to be a drug addict, there's nothing you can do to stop them. Nothing. No amount of love. No, what am I supposed to do? Tie them up and keep them in a locked room for 24 hours a day? You know, so just all these stigmas, you know, of the silence, the silence. At my son's funeral, his his grandmother and grandfather on his mother's side came up to me and said, Keith, we didn't know. And I remember shaking my head going, what? Your daughter didn't tell you? My, my wife, you know, Garrett's mother didn't tell you? Nine months earlier that he almost died was in, no, they found out at the funeral. That's part of the thing. Mm-hmm. Is that silence? People don't want to talk about it because they're embarrassed. To hell with that, you know. After I found out, I told everybody because, as a support group with friends and relatives, you know, there's there's help. That's what I want everybody to know who's a struggling addict right now. If you're struggling, there's help for you. There's help out there if you are ready to to quit and start over. There's help. So you know, I just want to say that. And Brad, if Keith wouldn't have, if, he, if Keith would have kept silent, silent and held it in and not spoken at, had not have spoken at the Choices program, how do you think your life would be? Wow. I can't, I can't say that it would be worse or better. Um, you know, all I know is that when when Keith spoke in front of me, it impacted me greatly. If if I didn't get anything from all the literature and all the the meetings I've had with my counselors, the one thing that affected me and impacted me greatly through my my time at Choices was Keith's speech. Um, you know, I wrote Keith a letter, you know, thanking him for coming and saying, you know, I don't really remember um, the whole thing, but something about, you know, if if you don't if you keep continuing to speak and you never get through to one other person just know you got through to me and that's how much i took from his speech you know we were we were speak our keith was speaking and i just i seen that as my mother you know right now my mom goes to the choices program with me as a guest speaker to kind of share what i put her through wow and uh you know she she says at the very end you know i usually talk first she says you know i i sit back and think that i was a failure you know is what keith just said you know she goes i should i have hugged him more should i got him a nicer car should i have done this should i done that no there's nothing my mom could have done to change the way that you know i turned out i chose the way i wanted to be that's pretty powerful, and I knew it was going to be powerful having the two of you here and, and talking about that and being able to corroborate on that. I, I mean, I think it's I mean, it's so important what both of you guys are doing. And, yeah, I, I mean, I can't thank you enough. as just, just knowing you, Keith, I'm yeah. super proud of you, being my friend and seeing what you've done and, and the, the help that, that you've given to people. And, and that's something that in, in – I think nothing illustrates it better than the the pedaling to stop pushing the, the short documentary. So I'll put a link to that so people can hear some of the other words that you read from the letters of, of people that, that you've helped out, that you've helped them discover it. Did you, you guys have any, any closing remarks, anything you want to say to put out there to the listeners and how they may be able to yeah. 
to help and and educate as well and how as a community we can do this and yeah. and really i guess help elevate our society i would leave it like this that old saying of it takes a village to raise a child is is there's a lot of truth in that uh, your parents can only do so much for you and then when you get out and start making your own choices you have to own your own decisions good bad or indifferent um, i never considered myself a public speaker before my Garrett, before Garrett passed. But now I've realized that out of all the, I've always been a community helper because I've always taken old houses and made them nice or I've built new ones where there wasn't one. And I always thought that was really cool, but that does, that pales in comparison to what I do now. This is the most important thing I'll ever do in my life is speaking in front of people as far as the choices program to people that are being incarcerated for drugs and to hear my story, and then talking also at uh, high schools where we're talking in ninth grade, 10th grade health classes that these kids need to hear from people who have been to hell and back that you can survive. And every time we speak, it's we break that, that stigma of, of being silent because our message is everybody in, in knows somebody who's struggling right now, whether it's a friend or relative, speak out and every time we speak at the end of that kids reach out or people at the choices program will reach out because they were afraid before or they had that embarrassment if i speak out you know people get no, forget that forget all that you'll be so amazed at by speaking out and speaking your mind and helping friends and relatives and lend them a hand how much you can help so i'll do this as long as i'm alive and i'm able to and I don't do it for any kind of accolades at all. It's all about trying to help society and somebody who's struggling or somebody not to struggle to be, you know, a better part of society. So I'll leave them with that. I just feel like, uh, you know, we need to do more as a, as a society um, to look at addiction differently than we do, you know, um, instead of looking at it like you're just a troubled person and, you know, he, he's a thief and he's a liar. Um, you know, I, I, I remember real quick, I, I stole the plumbing out of my own house. Okay. I cut the copper lines out of my own mother's house. You know, um, you know, if my mom would have told her friends that, you know, what, what were they going to think of me? You know, we need to do more as a group and, and for, uh, to, to help addicts get into treatment. You know, they, it's easy for someone to go to prison or go to jail. But if, if someone right now went to, um, you know, a, a drug treatment without insurance and said, I want to get in today and want help. Um, I think it's going to be a lot harder for them to, to get in. Um, I know that Chad at, uh, the Missouri, what is it? Missouri Network for Opiate Reform the, and they, Recovery. They help a lot of people out. We need more groups like that yeah. that, you know, will will help addicts get the treatment they need. Um, me as an addict, I started off with, you know, it being fun and I loved it. Um, but it came a point in time where I just thought that I couldn't stop. You know, I just kept going and going and going. I needed a way out and, and jail for me was it. You know, and that was my my last time using was when the the day I got arrested. And a lot of people have to hit rock bottom to make it, that change. Yeah. Just, I it's think true. that's human nature. And I had hit rock bottom for a while before I was able to change. You know, I didn't have a way out. So I'll leave it with that. Well, you're here now. You're doing great with your business. Keith is always telling me about how you're doing, and you're on social media. What 
Go ahead and tell us what you're doing with your business real quick, where they can find you. And uh, I, I'm Bradley Evans with Evans Flooring. I uh, I install hardwood floors and refinish. Um, I uh, I have ten employees that work for me full time. And became a, a good member of society. Uh, if you look at me today, you would never think that I was a heroin addict. Um, you know, I, I got my life back. I got my kid back. Uh, you know, me and my son are, are best friends. I just, uh, you know, I wake up every day with a smile on my face. You know, whether I, you know, had a bad week financially or a good week financially, it doesn't make a difference. I wake up clean and sober with a smile on my face, you know. And I just try to be a good person. And, you know, I, I don't do a whole lot with, um, you know, trying to help others other than going to the, the Choices program. I'd like to get a little more active in some things. But, uh, you know, I go to the Choices program, like I said, every three and a half months. And, you know, I looked at it like if I could just get through to one person, like Keith mm-hmm. got through to me. And maybe somebody, you know, every time I go and speak, there's always some person that raises their hand that just looks at me and just at all. And they say, your story is exactly like mine. And my mother's there, you know, and they have their mother or their father who put they put through the mm-hmm. same exact emotional strain as I did with mine. So. Yeah. And I think that really illustrates it. And we'll end on this. That really illustrates that you were that person that you read about that lady saying on Facebook that this guy, blah, blah, blah. You were at that point because of the drug, but now you're doing great things in the community with choices. And I I applaud you for that. You have your business. You're helping people that way. And that just shows that people don't give up on people. Yeah. Give them a a second shot and – see what happens so thank you both for what you do much love to you guys and uh appreciate you coming here and being honest telling your story thank Thank you you. thank you and one person can make a difference in somebody else's lives i don't know who or when or where or why that might happen but i'm going to do what i can as i can when i can how i can and if it helps one person save their life then it was all worth it and my son didn't die in vain. By the grace of God, I'm gonna do this bike ride and I'm gonna try and help save some lives. But it won't be me, it'll be them here in the story and that's the catalyst for them to change, then I'll keep telling it. If somebody will listen, I'll tell. Goodbye song, goodbye song.